are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are discussing an important topic tonight, overdose prevention. A good way to educate ourselves and our patients about overdose awareness is using Paula's mnemonic awareness, prevention, detection, reversal, and referral. We're going to talk about awareness first and discussing the epidemiology. This is comes from cdc.gov overdose deaths and involvement of illicit drugs. And the statistics are still being updated, but over 109,000 people have died so far from overdose of illicit substances. And fentanyl accounted for over 83,000 of these overdose deaths. Interestingly, number two is methamphetamine. Over 80% of drug overdose deaths involved opiates, and nearly 85% of overdose deaths involved illicitly manufactured fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, or methamphetamine alone or in combination. And this is the most important thing, and this is why we're doing this episode. In three out of the five overdose deaths, there were opportunities to link people to care or implement life-saving actions. Let's just talk a little bit about some of these risk factors. Who is at most risk for overdose deaths, particularly some of these social determinants of health? Okay, yeah. So the risk factors for an overdose, and this is not only opioids, this is all overdose um, deaths, but specifically from opioids, recent release from institutions um, put people at extremely high risk for an overdose event. So amongst people who have died from overdoses include, involving opioids, 10% had been released from an institution recently. So that would be like a jail, prison, inpatient rehabilitation facility, or a psychiatric hospital. So that's a huge number of people. Opioid-related overdose is the most frequent cause of death amongst people who recently have been released from prison. So let me just say that again. What's the most frequent cause of death from people who are released from prison? It's an overdose. Opioid overdose. It's not accidents. It's not violence. It's not a heart attack. It's an opioid overdose. And um, what I didn't know is the risk is especially high amongst women. Um, This information comes from a really good um, primer that's accessible from the National Harm Reduction Coalition website, and it's called the Primer for Implementation of Overdose Education and Naloxone Distribution in Jails and Prisons. A study in community-based opioid education naloxone distribution programs have shown that distribution of naloxone kits uh, prevent thousands of opioid overdoses. A study in North Carolina specifically showed that people who were formerly incarcerated were 40 times more at risk of dying from an opioid-related overdose in the two weeks after they were released as compared with the state's general population. And they found that prison and jail-based programs that do opioid um, overdose education and give the uh, prison inmates or jail um, inmates naloxone have been found to have life-saving potential. And one study showed that there was a 36% decrease in opioid overdoses in the first four weeks following release from a prison. 
And another program that did the same kind of programming, so opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution to jail visitors found that 10% of participants had administered naloxone in the last six months following training. So the training's effective. And 70% actually witnessed overdose events and 12 had occurred amongst people who were formerly in the jail or the prison. So it's really important that we support these programs. If you have anything to do with jails and prisons, advocate for this. And also if you treat people who are recently incarcerated or at risk for incarceration, be sure you educate them. A lot of this has to do with decreased tolerance. So when people are institutionalized, whether it's hospitalized or in jail or in prison or, you know, in a rehabilitation program, exactly. Their tolerance for opioids decreases significantly. And when they come out, there's obviously similar triggers and cravings and all kinds of cues person may return to using at the same quantity and amount that they had used prior to their institutional stay. And that dose is way too high for them. They don't have the tolerance anymore and they succumb to the overdose. So that's, that's something I want you to all remember in terms of a risk factor. So recently incarcerated people and these OEND programs are effective. So opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution. Those are the programs. Also, we're not talking about this specifically from this study, but there are programs uh, actually sponsored by Alchemies, the maker of Vivitrol, that give you samples to give to inmates while they're still incarcerated. Um, So you can give them injectable naltrexone before they leave. And it's free. The, The company pays for this. And this is something else that has been shown to reduce overdose events because people are not as likely to return to using. So that's something else to look into if you have any kind of connection with jail or prison populations. We just started doing that in our jail and we've given three injectable naltrexone injections just in the last month. And I feel real happy about it because not only do we hopefully protect people for those that really high risk time, the two to four weeks after incarceration, but also they've come and followed up in our clinic. Uh, so hopefully they'll continue to get care. That linkage, that linkage right. to care that we're always trying to right. get. Absolutely. So other, other risk factors, anytime a person has had a previous overdose, they're much more likely to have another overdose. So amongst the people who've died from overdoses involving opioids, about 10% had had a previous overdose that we know of. So Typically about, within the past year, exactly I think was part right. of that data. They'd had an, in many of them had had an overdose visit, even in the ER, there was another study and I'm trying to remember the journal that showed that, that they had before a fatal overdose, they'd actually had a previous overdose within the past year, even requiring a visit to the ER. Intervention, exactly. exactly. And you know what, this data is really distressing. And so when you take a history for patients, always get an overdose history. And it should ring so many bells in your head and put up so many red flags if someone has had an overdose. It gives you so much information, right? It gives you information about how, what kind of a user they are, what kind of a drug they use, and their risk. And so just like someone who's had a pulmonary embolism is at risk for a future pulmonary embolism, we'd never Suicide take that lightly. Risk. Exactly. Yes. Another yeah. risk factor, Darlene, is a mental health diagnosis. So amongst people who've died of drug overdose, one quarter of them had a documented mental health diagnosis. So that's pretty sobering. And that also begs the question of how many overdoses are intentional versus unintentional. And we never, we don't know the answer to that, but it's a very important question. And when we do our suicide episode 
we'll talk more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if someone has a history of substance use disorder treatment, they're officially more at risk for an overdose. And, you know, the percentage is 20% of people who died from an opioid overdose um, had previously been treated for their SUD. Now, this doesn't, this isn't causation, but this is association that people who are seeking treatment have a history of substance use are more likely to die from their substance use disorder, which just tells me that this is a life threatening condition we should not take it seriously i mean excuse me we should not take it lightly right yes absolutely all right and then the other sobering this is not really a risk factor um but this is an interesting to statistic and again this is very important when we come to talk about prevention and awareness is that nearly 40 percent of opioid and stimulant overdose deaths occurred while a bystander was present so that's that's pretty terrible really because you have to ask well what was going on did the person who was present not have naloxone were they not trained did they not feel comfortable to call 911 uh, but were they afraid of being charged with a you know drug charge themselves were they unaware the person was overdosing etc recognize the symptoms yeah exactly so 40 percent have a bystander almost half that's crazy Mm -hmm. yeah right and you already said this, but more than five and three and five people who died from a drug overdose had an identified opportunity for linkage to care or life-saving action. So what we're talking about is a preventable cause of death in this country, right? A cause of death that's now the most common cause of death for people under the age of 49. Um, I mean, we're talking about this, a problem that's lowering the life expectancy of humans. <laughs> this yeah. is terrible. Okay, one last risk factor. I'm going to talk about, and then you're going to talk about what we can do about it, is just the social determinants of health, right? Social determinants of health play a huge role, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. in uh, drug overdose risk. And we know this, we're just now, I mean, I think we're barely catching up with recognizing it and and accepting it and beginning to address it. There is a good article published in the Journal of American, by the Journal of American Pharmaceutical Association in 2023. And uh, the author is Sistani et al. And they basically looked at the association between drug overdose mortality and the social determinants of health across different levels of influence in the socio-ecological model. And what they found was that Violent crime and social vulnerability demonstrates a statistically significant impact on drug overdose mortality. I mean, that's not too surprising, but it was a big difference. So violent crime being number one and just general um, social vulnerability, you know, not having access to healthcare, uh, poverty, history of trauma, et cetera. Race is huge. And we haven't talked about that this time, but we have in the previous podcast that what color your skin is, what your race is, plays a huge part of your risk for an overdose and dying by overdose, which is terrible. It is. So we have to be aware of that for people and make sure that we're addressing the social determinants of health whenever we can so that we level the playing field so that everybody has an equal access to services. And right now that's not happening. Black people are not offered buprenorphine the same as white people. Why is that? That is not okay. And that's true for a lot of different kinds of treatment. So we need to address that. That is so true. So Paula, you've talked about, you know, number one awareness. And then so 
public education campaigns, public health messaging, individual education for at-risk populations. So recognizing who's at risk, anyone who with a history of overdose people at risk, anyone who uses drugs or alcohol, and then these high-risk populations, anyone who is coming out of incarceration, institution, our highest risk. And then prevention, we've touched on that. And then detection. So just what we said, how how do you recognize an overdose? And this is also for our our medical as well as lay responders. And I think that's sometimes a really key thing. And this comes from the National Harm Reduction Coalition. They have a great, that I think that's from that same paper you already referenced, Paula, but they have a great list of signs and symptoms to look for and to respond when you see this in someone. So the common and what we typically will see is, and this is with opiate overdose, constricted pupils, muscles are slack and droopy. That's kind of the classic. But then if you have somebody overdosing, you have what, quote, people might nod out. And you've heard that term. People might scratch a lot due to itchy skin. The speech may be slurred. They might, you might see the sudden loss of consciousness, completely unresponsive to stimuli. They're, or the person is awake, but unable to respond or talk or speak to you. Their breathing may be very slow and shallow, or it may be very irregular, erratic or could have just stopped completely. They're, for lighter skinned people, the skin may be blue or purple, darker skinned. You may see a gray or ashen color. And I think that's really helpful to watch for that. You may see vomiting. You also may notice choking sounds, gurgling sounds, what has been labeled, quote unquote, the death rattle. And their skin may be pale, clammy. Fingernails and lips can, can be blue or purplish black. And then pulse or heart rate is slow, erratic, or may not even be palpable. So any of those signs is always something to alert. All right. So response, Paula, reversal. What do we do? What does someone do if if they have a friend or a family member who displays any of the spectrum overdose? Well, the first thing to do is immediately call 911. You always want to call 911 and you want to educate your patients. Call 911 no matter what you do. You want to get help and you want to stay on the phone and you want to give naloxone as soon as you can, even if you're not sure what the person is overdosing from or even if it is an overdose. You always want to give naloxone and you may want, you may need to be prepared to give it more than once because especially for these highly potent synthetic opioids, uh, one dose is frequently not enough, especially nowadays. So you want to call 911. You want to give naloxone in whichever way that the naloxone you have accessible is administered. Like most of the naloxone these days seems to be nasal, intranasal. But back in the old days, you know, we had IM, um, naloxone. And then you want to start CPR if needed. So if the person doesn't have a pulse or their pulse is very weak, 
and or they're not breathing, you want to start to do chest compressions and rescue breathing. And I know in the jail, the groups that we teach, you know, a lot of people don't know how to do CPR and they ask us questions, but this is where 911 can be very helpful. So obviously getting trained in CPR is really helpful. And there are a lot of treatment programs around the country who are training their clients and their patients in CPR for this for, exact reason. For free. And for free and family members. And so try and get them connected in the community to free CPR classes. And then let people know that if they call 911, the dispatcher on the other side will t lead them through exactly what to do. Of course, they must stay with the person. Don't ever leave. Don't ever leave the person who's overdosing. Stay with them and then understand your state or your country laws Certain states have laws that protect you as the bystander, as the companion of someone who's overdosed, even if you are using drugs yourself. They're called Good Samaritan laws. And um, they say that if you're helping someone in this situation, that you can't be charged with a crime. Now, this is true in Utah. Um, I know that there are other states that may not have these laws yet, but at the very least, you could call 911 and you could say someone is unconscious. You don't necessarily need to say someone has overdosed from a drug. You just say someone's unconscious, they're not breathing, they don't have a pulse. And then medics will respond to the emergency. There's some good resources. Um, I really like the National Harm Reduction Coalition's website. They have all this information available in terms of how to respond to an overdose, how to recognize it. There's lots of printable material you can give your patients and your families. And also SAMHSA has a toolkit. It's called the Opioid Overdose Toolkit, and it's downloadable. You just go to SAMHSA and type in opioid overdose, and it pulls up this booklet that you can uh, print and give to people. I used to have a bunch of these printed, and I'd hand them out to everybody because it has information for providers, information for patients, and information for family members, and it pretty much leads you through everything you need to know about an opioid overdose. Those are great resources. Yes, and I always, whenever I give a prescription for naloxone, which we give to every patient on their first visit, and we make sure we update that at least yearly, is give them an information sheet like that. I just make talk about it and just give them some information. But I think that's a great that's great advice, Paula. Right, and also look look to see where in your community you can get free naloxone to give to actually hand to people. Um, I think you, you know, Darlene, you've got it right. You prescribe it to everybody. And if possible, especially if you treat a high-risk population or people who use drugs. Link them if, to care. Yeah. Link them to care, but see if your health department or local syringe exchange programs, or there's often foundations that will give you naloxone to stock in your clinic and you can actually hand them naloxone because the rate of people going to the pharmacy and picking up a prescription is not as good as you actually just handing it to them and then Absolutely. you know it's in their hand. Absolutely. So linkage to care referral. So this is the key to prevent that. You brought up a really great statistic, Paula, that a fatal overdose people had a previous overdose within the past year. That was 20%, right? And so to prevent a fatal overdose is anyone who experiences an overdose is get them referred to treatment. This is particularly important for EMS, hospitals, emergency rooms. And 
us as providers, like you said, taking a really careful history and making sure that we're engaging people in treatment. So getting them involved in care. And then there was an article, Paula, that you were talking about. So this came from the American Journal of Preventative Medicine from just this past July. So July of 2023 from Samples at All. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, this is a great paper based on a huge study. Uh, They looked at national Medicare data, and they looked at opioid-involved overdose fatalities that were identified in the year after a non-fatal overdose using this index data. And they looked at a sample of nearly 82,000 people, so a lot of people, um, about and what they found was that only 6.5% of the sample had opioid use disorder treatment after the index overdose. So that's that's pretty awful. So out of that 82,000 people who had an opioid overdose event that was recorded, only 6.5% of them... Less than had, 10%. Right, had yeah. opioid use disorder treatment. Now, buprenorphine was associated with a significantly lower risk of opioid-involved overdose death. Okay, that's 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 this is the key here we want to drive home. Buprenorphine was associated with a significantly lower risk of opioid involved overdose death. So if people were subsequently put on buprenorphine following their index overdose event, they were much less likely to die from an opioid overdose. However, they found that opioid use disorder related psychosocial treatment was not associated with risk of death. So that's interesting. So you know, treatment's good, all treatment's valuable, and there are many paths to recovery. However, this data from a very, very large and robust study shows that people with buprenorphine treatment actually have fewer risks. So it's associated with a 62% reduction in the risk of opioid-involved overdose deaths. However, fewer than 1 in 20 individuals received buprenorphine in the subsequent year. So, you know, the bottom line is this is a life-saving medication with good evidence to back it up. And so getting people low barrier, low threshold, rapid access to buprenorphine following an overdose event is really, really paramount. Absolutely. That's a really interesting study. Other measures, so you you touched on this enhancing, obviously, our linkage to care, so mental health services, substance use disorder treatment, support services, all this wraparound care that we talk about, increasing access to harm reduction services, which you've talked about, distributing naloxone, syringe exchange, increasing distribution of an access to naloxone, especially for bystanders, educating them on use and and obviously the signs of opiate overdose, reducing high-risk drug use by improving prescribing practices. So this is community and provider education, preventing initiation of substance use, and then addressing the use of multiple substances. So addressing these high-risk, these co-use of sedative hypnotics with opiates to reduce that risk of overdose. So that's prevention. I think, what else? I think we've covered no, that pretty I think well. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've identified the risk factors and um, we now have something to do about it. So prevention is key. You know, to educate people, you've got to make sure that they have access to naloxone. We've got to 
really understand harm reduction and we need to become comfortable with talking to our patients about safer use. We can't just pretend that they're not using and we got to be able to talk about using a test dose, using with someone else present, using some of these don't use alone phone lines that they can use. Um, you know, so there are resources out there for people who are, who are using that can keep them safer so that they don't die, especially right now with fentanyl being so lethal. And then we looked at some of the data of referral to treatment and how important it is. Um, I think it's great, Darlene, that you went over how to detect an overdose and what to do. You know, always call 911. Naloxone is the key. You've got to give multiple doses of naloxone if necessary. And we should have naloxone available, you know, to give to communities, families, bystanders. We should all carry it. And then linkage to treatment is crucial. So, you know, overdose awareness is coming up August 31st, I think, and we want to honor people who have lost someone from an opioid overdose. And it's so grim. We just, you know, just in this line of work, it's just heartbreaking. So um, I love this episode. And thank you, Darlene, for your contribution. Thank you. Have a good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, your advice to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.